0: You may be seated. And when you are seated, please open up your copies of God's Word to the book of Romans. We are continuing our journey through the book of Romans. Today, uh, we are in the latter half of chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. What we'll do is we will read um, the entire chapter. So we're going to start at verse 1 of Romans chapter 6 just as a reminder, um, Paul starts after his greetings and um, expressions that he wishes he would be able to come to the church at Rome, um, he says that um, the gospel is um, the power of God. And then he indicts all of us. He says that every single person born after Adam is in desperate need of the gospel. And then he says what the gospel is. It's not our works. It's not our merits. It's not our efforts. It has everything to do with Christ, the one who was sent to keep the law perfectly and then go to the cross and do that great exchange where your sin is those, of, those that believe God, their sin is transferred to him and his righteousness, his earned law keeping is transferred to them so that they stand before God um, in the righteousness of Christ. And Paul says salvation's always been this way. It's always been by faith. And he points back to Abraham And then he turns in chapter six and says, what does this mean for us as believers, those who were once dead, but that have been brought to life and believe? You're united to Christ. How are we to live? That's where we find ourselves today. Romans chapter six, beginning at verse one. This is God's holy and inspired word. What shall we say then? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful and it speaks of great things. And Lord, we see that inspired by your spirit, you have chosen to use word pictures, metaphors all over this text. Lord, we pray that as we think about this text, as we meditate on what you have done for us, that you would help us. Lord, we know that you will speak. Will you give ears to hear? Lord, we beg to that end. Would you speak to us? Would you tell each one what you would have them to hear? Lord, we pray that you would move in such a way even for your own glory's sake. We'd ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanna start by telling you about a man from the past, um, a man named Robert Smalls. Uh, Robert Smalls was a remarkable man who was born into slavery in Buford, South Carolina in 1839. And in his teen years, he was sent to Charleston to be hired out as a laborer. And eventually, he found his way to the docks um, working in shipping. He was uh, essentially a a longshoreman. And he started at the bottom, but eventually worked his way up to becoming a wheelman. Uh, That's a helmsman, but um, things being what they were at that time, a black man couldn't have that title. So he was a wheelman. He, he steered the ships. He, he, um, he heard the captain's orders and he maneuvered uh, the ship about. And in 1862, during the American Civil War, Smalls worked as a decked hand on, the conf- on a Confederate transport ship. And on May 13th, he courageously commandeered this ship and he navigated it past Confederate defenses, and he delivered it to a Union blockade. And this act of bravery secured his freedom, and it also delivered valuable uh, intelligence to uh, the Union army, as well as a Confederate vessel. And do you know what Smalls did with his freedom He began working as a civilian for the Union Army until March 1863 when he enlisted himself into the Union Army. His story is absolutely amazing. He was present at 17 major battles and engagements during the Civil War. He was a freed slave who then enlisted himself to serve. And we see something similar in our text. Paul uses the metaphor of slavery to describe how a Christian has been set free from sin. And what does he say that you should do with your freedom? He says that we should offer ourselves as what? Slaves slaves of righteousness you could see that at the end of verse 19 so as we look at this text this text we're going to ask uh, why should christians offer themselves as slaves to righteousness why should they embrace a life of righteousness and we're going to start answering those questions with our first heading the divine deliverance the divine deliverance In the preceding chapters, Paul has been discussing the theme of salvation and the transformative power of God's grace. And as chapter 6 opens, Paul says that Christians have died to sin and that they have been united to Christ in both his death and his resurrection. Believers have been declared Righteous, and they, and they have been united to the Holy One, the risen Christ who has all power and authority and has called them into a relationship with himself. You see, Jesus is very much alive. And in verse 14, Paul wraps up his argument declaring sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law but under grace. However, he anticipates that some people might misinterpret his statement. They might reason, if we're under grace and free from sin's penalty, then what does a little sin matter? Consider how Paul addresses this head on in verse 15. He asks, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And how does he answer? By no means. Absolutely not. Paul rejects the suggestions that Christians have a license to sin. God forbid. Is that what you would think of Christ? He's a license for your use. God forbid. To be under grace means to be under God's unmerited favor and forgiveness made available through faith in Jesus. Grace is God's freely given gift of salvation. It's not based on human merit or effort, but on the finished work of Christ on the cross. When someone is under grace, they have received God's pardon for their sins and are now in a right relationship with him, justified by faith. Paul's point is that Christians have been set free from condemnation under the law and are now living under the grace of God. This freedom doesn't give a license to sin. No, No, the grace of God empowers believers to live a righteous and transformed life through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They're no longer slaves to sin. That's right, the Christian worldview is a supernatural worldview. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells the believer. It's a supernatural birth. Now, understanding the cultural context of Rome at this time is crucial. In the first century, one third of the population of Rome were slaves, and many of the free men were once slaves. Every member of the church in Rome knew and felt the impact of Paul's words. In verse 16, Paul employs the metaphor of slavery to illustrate obedience and loyalty to a master. They would have known this. They knew what it was like to be a slave, to have a master, and what was expected. He writes. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Paul's emphasizing the importance of living a life of righteousness and holiness after becoming a Christian he introduces the metaphor of slavery to emphasize that everyone serves someone or something. And the things we serve are often revealed by our priorities. They show the things that we love from the heart. Some are enslaved to their work, their jobs consume their allegiance Their days are spent in slavish obedience. Others are enslaved to possessions. Every thought is devoted to acquiring or maintaining things. The ill-tempered serve their tempers. The sensual serve their bodies. We obey the things that enslave us. All humanity serves under one of two slaveries. That's what this text says. Either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. At the core of this metaphor is the contrast between two masters, sin and righteousness. Before coming to faith in Christ, believers were slaves to sin, bound by its power and its control and unable to escape its grasp. However, through faith in Christ, we've been set free from the dominion of sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Consider verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Notice that believers were slaves of sin, but they were set free from sin. He's referring to the conversion of their very nature, Believers experience regeneration. Now, that's a big word, right? What does that mean? They're brought to life. Regeneration is they're given life. They were dead, but they were given life. They're supernaturally born from above by the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about that in John chapter 3. He said, you must, you must be born again. The old self characterized by bondage to sin is crucified with Christ and they become new creations with a renewed nature. That's what happens for a believer, dead and they become alive. Paul says they become obedient from the heart. You see that in the text? they become obedient from the heart paul's emphasizing the sincere and genuine nature of their faith believers are transformed in their inner being they experience a change in their affections and in their desires and in their motivations their goals It's not merely outward compliance to rules and regulations. It's a matter of the heart. But a heartfelt response, that's what it is. It's a heartfelt response to God's grace and love. They're committed to the standard of teaching that they have heard from Jesus and his apostles. You see, they've embraced the gospel Paul says that they become slaves of righteousness. In simple terms, he means that believers, after having been freed from sin, from the power of sin, willingly submit themselves to living a life that aligns with God's revealed will. They choose to follow and obey God. They choose to follow and obey him, desiring what is right and pleasing to God instead of being controlled by sin. You see there, allegiance is renewed. That's our second heading, the renewed allegiance. The renewed allegiance. I'm a survivor of the public school system. <laughs> Maybe you're not surprised, um, and I and I grew up, I grew up reciting the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, and you may be surprised, um, but the Pledge of Allegiance is still in common practice in public schools, although students have the right to refrain from reciting it if they choose. And the pledge was initiated by the United States in 1892. And the hopes uh, were that the pledge would foster a sense of loyalty and allegiance to the United States. Pledging allegiance is a way for individuals to express their loyalty, support, and commitment to someone or something. And there are many illustrations of uh, pledging our allegiance that we're familiar with. Um, We pledge allegiance to the flag. Politicians take an oath of office. Members of the military take an oath of enlistment. And when we uh, get married, we exchange marriage vows. We pledge our lifelong commitment to one another. And we take vows in the church, don't we? Uh, Just today, we took vows regarding um, the covenant of baptism Pledging our allegiance is familiar to us. And as our text continues, Paul wants believers to have a renewed allegiance. He wants us to recognize our past slavery and impurity and the fruitlessness of that bondage. And he wants us to be transformed by the truth of the gospel. He wants us to, to surrender ourselves as slaves of righteousness. He wants us to pledge our allegiance to Jesus. In verse 19, Paul writes, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul acknowledges that he's been using slavery as a metaphor, as an illustration to help believers understand the commitment that they should have to Christ He's speaking in human terms and using familiar language to explain profound spiritual truths. He says, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Again, Paul identifies Christians as slaves. The Greek word Paul used here is doulos. A doulos wasn't a hired servant who could come and go as they pleased. No, a doulos was a person who had been purchased, he was his master's possession, someone who belonged entirely to another. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul addressed believers saying, You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. You have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Your life belongs to Jesus. And while normally we'd disdain the idea of being someone's slave, in this case, we can rejoice. Because our master is gentle and lowly and in him we find rest for our souls. He is good and just and true. The scripture says he is love itself. And as believers, we love him. And that's because he's converted us. He's transformed us. He's made us alive again. The last time we meditated on Romans 6, we were reminded that the Bible speaks of human nature before the fall, after the fall, when a person is born again, and when a person enters eternity. Each nature is different. But we only need to consider two, right? Because Adam and Eve fell. We don't have to think about that nature anymore. And we're not in eternity yet. That leaves only two. After the fall and being born again. Ever since the fall, humanity is born dead in trespasses and sins. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. We're born in bondage to sin and we're unable to save ourselves. What Paul is talking about here is the nature of a person who has been born again. He's talking about the nature of believers. When you're born again, you undergo a supernatural change. This transformation involves a renewal of the heart and of the mind and of the will. When the Holy Spirit revives people, He gives them spiritual life, a new nature. Believers have both. An old nature, which is our fallen and sinful nature inherited from Adam, and the new nature, which is received when we are born again. And these, these two natures are at conflict. Maybe you feel that in your life. Maybe you uh, feel that struggle with temptation, that fight, that war that is taking place with the two natures. And we're called to live in accordance with the new nature. Paul says, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. There's another big Christian word, huh? Sanctification. What's that mean? Sanctification is a cooperative work of God and Christians It's a process of ongoing transformation, making a person more like Christ. This spiritual growth happens through the Holy Spirit and God's word. Unlike other divine works, sanctification involves both God and us. God convicts us of sin, and he empowers us through the spirit, and he works in us, to will and to work for his good pleasure. Meanwhile, Christians read scripture, they pray, they mortify sin, that is, they're to be at the business of killing sin, and they are to yield to the Spirit. Imagine a garden with two plants, one representing the old nature and the other symbolizing the new nature that we have in Christ. The old sinful nature is like a weed that has taken root in the soil, causing harm to other plants around it. In contrast, the new nature is like a young, healthy plant that has been planted In your renewed allegiance, you begin to starve the old nature, the weed. You identify sin and you stop watering it. You intentionally avoid sinful behaviors and temptations, cutting off all source of influence that lead to wrongdoing. Jesus talked about that, didn't he? Radical amputation. If your eye makes you sin, pluck it out. If your hand makes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better to enter in this life maimed than to end up in hell. He's speaking metaphorically, of course. Do you need to cut something or someone out of your life? Radical amputation. Additionally, you pull the weed out by its roots. Symbolizing repentance. You acknowledge and confess your sins, seeking God's forgiveness and turning away from your old sinful ways. And you feed the new nature, the healthy plant. You water and nourish it daily through prayer and reading the Bible, by coming to church and sitting under the preached word, by taking part in the sacraments, This feeds your new nature. This new nature, which depends on your relationship with God and allows the Holy Spirit to work in your heart. You also protect the new plant from harm, covering it during harsh weather, putting a fence around it. This signifies guarding your heart and mind from influences that can hinder your growth in sanctification, that could hinder your growth in Christ likeness. Do you care? Christ says, Follow me. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. As time goes on with consistent effort and care, the new plant, the new nature grows stronger and healthier while the weed, the old sinful nature, withers and dies away. The garden represents the believer's life and the process of starving out the old nature and feeding the new nature. This is the journey of sanctification. And all of this results in a glorious outcome. That's our third heading. The glorious outcome. The glorious outcome. Sometimes in life, it's helpful uh, to see the outcome of various paths. So, that we know which way we should move forward. And that's one of the reasons that we study history. We study history so that we can uh, learn from what has been done and we can make better decisions. We study the past to avoid undesirable outcomes in the future, Well, as Paul concludes this passage, he shows the end results of two paths. In verse 20 and 21, he writes, for when you were slaves to sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul reflects on the pre-Christian days. He says they were free in regard to righteousness. When you live under the dominion of sin, you don't feel any obligation or desire to pursue righteousness. You don't feel bound by any requirements of righteousness. Rather, sin holds sway over your life. You aren't concerned with living in accordance with God's standards of holiness. Your life isn't characterized by a pursuit of righteousness or the obedience that God commands. And you don't really feel like you need the gospel. You don't need religion. And Paul talks about the fruit of sin He uses another metaphor here. He speaks of fruit. He's getting at the idea that our actions and choices have consequences, and the path we choose will determine the ultimate outcome of our lives. Just as fruit is the visible result of what a tree is, our actions and behavior reveal the nature of our hearts and the direction we are heading in, In life. And Paul says that a life that bears the fruit of sin leads to shame and ultimately death. But when you're born again, you see things differently. In verse 22, Paul writes But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul says the fruit or evidence of genuine faith in Christ is the ongoing transformation that occurs in the life of the believer. Our past slavery brought only shame and death, but our enslavement to God brings only freedom from sin, not only freedom from sin, but sanctification and eternal life. And verse 23 gives us a triumphant summation, which is a fitting conclusion to the entire chapter. Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This text is full of word pictures Now instead of fruit, Paul speaks of wages and he speaks of a free gift. By using the term wages, um, he is drawing a comparison between sin and employment where sin pays its workers with death as they earn compensation. What do we earn with sin? The basic wage is death. The more we sin, the more we earn. And there's always a payoff. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. As slaves of sin, we earn wrath. If God didn't pay what we earn, he would be unjust. You see, sin has serious consequences. And the natural outcome of a life lived in sin is, is death. The word death here encompasses both physical death and spiritual death in hell. On the other hand, Paul contrasts sin with the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ. Eternal life isn't something earned or merited by human effort. It's a gracious and undeserved Undeserved gift given by God to those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Righteousness is given to us without cost. We don't earn it through good deeds or personal achievements. Instead, it's offered out of God's love and mercy towards us. It's received with the open arms of faith. The gift wasn't free to Christ. He paid for it through his sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus took upon himself the punishment for our sins, making atonement for us. His death and resurrection opened the way for us to receive the gift of eternal life by faith in him. It's a glorious outcome and a response of allegiance to him. Spawns from gratitude. Responds from love. It's hard to explain. When when you've been transformed by God, there's a real true affection in your heart. It's not a burden to follow him. We desire to follow him. It's our pleasure to follow him. Do you remember the Lord Jesus when he talked about following the will of the Father? It was no burden to him. It was his delight to serve the will of the Father. And the spirit within us produces that same kind of affection. We desire to follow after our Lord. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. It's hard. There's a struggle between the old and new nature. But our love, out of our love and affection, we follow. I began by talking about the life of Robert Smalls. What I didn't tell you is that Smalls is one of the first African Americans to receive the Medal of Honor. And later on, he was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives. And he went went back and he bought that house um, where he grew up as a slave. And just as Smalls courageously offered himself to serve the union forces, we as believers are called to offer ourselves as slaves of righteousness to God. Through the grace of Christ, we have been set free from sin's dominion, and now we have a renewed allegiance to our Savior. Our past slavery to sin produced only shame and death, but now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been transformed. Our lives bear the fruit of sanctification leading to eternal life. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law, but under the grace of God, which empowers us to live in righteousness and obedience the choice is clear. We can either continue in a path of sin which leads to death or we can embrace the free gift of God which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's not about earning our way to heaven. It's about responding to God's love and mercy with gratitude and allegiance. Let us daily starve out our old sinful nature and feed our new nature through prayer and the reading of God's word and by yielding to the Holy Spirit who is at work in our lives. And as we do so, we'll grow in sanctification and bear the fruit of righteousness. Believers, stand firm in your allegiance to Christ knowing that you have been purchased by his blood and you are now slaves of righteousness. And may the fruit of your lives glorify the Lord and lead others to know the one who gives true freedom and eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to begin by confessing to you that we are sinners. That's no news to you. Um, in fact, Lord, you are the one that told us, though we perceive it. Lord, we would ask that you would forgive us. And Lord, we, as those who have been set free, would give you thanks. We would dance for joy, O Lord, because you have set us free and put life into our hearts and a love for you. Lord, we pray for anyone who is unsaved, but questions are rolling through their minds. Lord, you are the only one who can jailbreak someone. You are the only one who can raise the dead. You're the only one with that kind of power. Lord, we'd ask that you would make any of those who are dead among us alive and that you would implant in them a love for yourself, that you would renew their heart, their minds and their wills. Lord, for any of us that are struggling, oh Lord, give them the power to discontinue watering sin. Uh, Lord, sometimes when we garden um, and we haven't done it in so long, weeds overtake the garden Lord, if there are those that need help pulling weeds and they need help with the garden, give them the power to reach out to those around them. Lord, help us to pull the weeds of sin out of our life. Lord, give us power and strength. Help us, give us a desire to feed our new natures, that they become strong, that we would be sanctified unto your glory. Lord, we'd ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.